Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. All of us listen to podcasts in different kinds of settings. Some of us are in the car driving. Some of us are out in the woods taking a walk. Maybe some people are on their bike. I'm not quite sure how smart it is to be riding your bike with headphones in, but that's another conversation altogether. And some of us, I think, listen to podcasts kind of, you know, we're getting a little tired at the end of the day or whatever, and it's a good time for a podcast. Uh, this is not a podcast that I would ex- encourage you to listen to right before you plan to go to sleep. Uh, we are with a person who is incisive, very clear in his views, a very pithy writer, and someone who I always learn from and am fascinated by listening to, Richard Landis. In the technical side, Professor Richard Landis was trained as a medievalist. And he taught in the history department in Boston University. He's now an independent historian living in Jerusalem. His work focuses on apocalyptic beliefs at the turn of the first millennium, his book, The Peace of God, and the second millennium, Global Jihad and Woke. Um, Richard, we're going to have you introduce yourself in a second, but the book, which runs about 500 pages, a little light reading for a Shabbat afternoon, um, is called Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad. So we could save people the time and say the answer is yes. The whole world could be wrong and now save yourself uh, the 500 pages, but they shouldn't because there's a lot in here. So a lot of fascinating stuff and depressing stuff in here. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, first of all, before we go on, more than I just read to our listeners. Well, I think uh, two of the most important things about my training as a medievalist is that, uh, first of all, I work on a pre-modern society, and as a result, have a sense of the kinds of mentalities. I consider myself a historian in the Anal Mentalité school. Uh, The mentalities that drove people in earlier periods, which I think we moderns almost can't imagine or I might say won't allow ourselves to imagine. So on the one hand that means things like uh, shame honor culture in which it is expected even required that you shed the blood of someone, could be your own, for the sake of honor. And these are things that we have uh, not overcome in the sense that nobody wants to be shamed and everybody would like honor But on the other hand, we don't believe that it's something that you kill for, whereas in some cultures, it is. Oh, we have that problem in Israel in certain parts of the culture, actually. Exactly. Okay, so So, let me just get a quick... So you're you're trained as a medievalist. Right. You're trained in these cultures which are, I would say, and tell me if I'm wrong, very non-Western, very, very dissimilar from the 
cultural assumptions that we make today, whether we're European, North American, South American, any part of the West. How in your own life story does a person who's trained as a medievalist Mm -hmm. end up spending so much time on what seem on the surface at least to be profoundly contemporary issues. I was I wouldn't say modern because gotcha. they're not really modern. They're they're gotcha. pre-modern a certain way, but right. but just in your terms of your own life story. I mean, I imagine you're doing your doctorate, you're planning on talking about people who lived a thousand years ago, exactly. right? And now you talk about I'm, and, okay, and still are. After finishing this, I've gone back. Okay, that's interesting. Maybe we'll have that conversation right. sometime, right. but you took a very long detour. Right. Away from writing and researching people right. who lived a thousand years ago right. to writing and researching people who are alive right now. Right. Why? So that's the second component of my training as a medievalist is I worked on apocalyptic movements. Apocalyptic movements, millennial apocalyptic movements, are movements that expect either the last judgment, imminently, imminent is the key thing, or they expect the kingdom of heaven to descend on earth. So my previous book to this was a book called Heaven on Earth, The Varieties of the Millennial Experience, the last chapter of which is dedicated to global jihad. So, um, so how did I come to this? You know, in 1994-95 I was here. um, Here being Jerusalem. Here being Jerusalem for the year, you know, it was the beginning of Oslo, everybody was very enthusiastic, or not everybody, but lots of people. I was. I joined dialogue groups and so on. Um, And I met graduate student who's now a professor at uh, Rice, David Cook, who was working on Muslim apocalyptic, the core of which was happening in the area surrounding both in the Palestinian territories and the area surrounding Lebanon, Jordan, and so on. That's where the publications were coming from. And he described to me an apocalyptic movement, which is in the categorization that I developed, an active cataclysmic movement, which means that, mean? that means that that before either judgment comes or the kingdom of heaven on earth comes, the global caliphate in this case, a vast amount of catastrophe, catastrophic events have to occur, the destruction of evil to pave the way for good. And that's things that human beings have to do. Well, and that's the active, because there's passive. The Christian, the, the, the rapture Christians... Put that in God's hand, right? Wait for it to happen. Wait for it to happen. Other groups... Which like, was, by the way, very very dissimilarly, but still there are parallels here, the original attitude of the orthodox to Zionism in yes. the end of the 19th yes, century. absolutely. You know, you can't force history, just right. wait for God to bring right. us back. Right. Different argument altogether, right. but still something. So that's, I would call that active, not cataclysmic, active transformative. In okay. other words, we engage in, but we're transforming the world, we're not destroying everything in Okay, so Christian apocalypticism basically argues terrible things have to happen, but we don't make them happen. God, God is going to make God's them happen. That'll be the sign that God and is doing And that's this. the tribulation. God brings the tribulation. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't flip. And there, you know, there's a fantastic book by Boyer um, on how the people who armed the nuclear weapons were in one town in Texas, and they believed that they were doing God's work that this was preparing for the the tribulation, which would be in a In what years are we talking about? This is the 50s and 60s. So it is possible, but with Islam, with, with jihad, um, with global jihad, uh, this was an open and 
clear case of active cataclysmic. And in the category of apocalyptic beliefs, when people say religion has killed more people than anything, first of all, I don't think so. Honor shame has definitely killed more people than anything. But, but of the religious beliefs, this belief is megadeth. This is, uh, I have a chapter in my previous book on the Taiping. Um, when they were done with 14 years of millennial warfare against the Qing dynasty. In what year is this? This is 1850, 1850 to 1864. An estimation of 20 to 35 million Chinese were dead. Wow. Yeah. So once you're in this mode, there's nothing holding you back. And I think both the Nazis and the communists and the Maoists, the 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 Stalinists, the, the Bolsheviks, and the, the Maoists were into this mindset. It was secular, but nonetheless, we are preparing heaven on earth. Right. So what is active, so active apocalyptic? As you're talking about, there's different categories. So active in, this part of the, in this part of the world, you're saying it's active. It's meaning, active meaning what? meaning what? Meaning that we jihadis, mujahideen, are the agents of God in bringing about the destruction necessary to pave the way for the global calendar. Okay, I'm just repeating because I want to make sure our listeners gotcha. understand. So the, gotcha. the Christian worldview is more passive. There needs right. to be fire and brimstone and destruction before right. the kingdom of heaven can come. But we're waiting but, for it. But God will wait. God will bring right. it. We wait for it. Right. In the jihadi world, you're saying that's not the case. We, human beings, have to create right. all the destruction. Right. And then that paves the way for right. Right. the caliphate, right. which is their vision right. of the world to come of something like that. Okay. So then... Being alerted to this, I began to realize how much of the rhetoric of um, the Palestinian Authority reflected both honor, shame, and active cataclysmic apocalyptic. In what year now are we talking? 95, 96, So around the Oslo years. Oslo years, you know, and, and uh, for instance... The, so you're saying that this, this attitude is not in the worldview of Iranian clerics? Oh, yeah. The view that we would have thought is the view of Iranian clerics, right. clerics from Beirut or wherever, right. has actually infiltrated, so to speak. It the, permeates the culture. Permeates the culture of the Palestinian Authority, uh, well, with, with whom Israel at that point is negotiating exactly, a deal. Exactly. And so, um, I mean, we can come back to this if you want, but, but basically it's at that point that I started to uh, get concerned. I wasn't writing a book yet about it, but I was getting concerned about the way in which, um, you know, I remember Rabin after every uh, suicide terror attack coming on and saying, this is the price for peace, we have to pay. And, and I remember thinking, you're not paying a price for peace. You're paying a price for war. Well, you said you were in favor of Oslo, though. I was initially. And then I became, it became clear to me that whereas for us and the Americans and the, the Norwegians, this was land for peace. In the honor-shame world, the more concessions you get, the more you are encouraged to attack. And that for Arafat, this was land for war. And, and that sets up this terrible, um, literally contradiction in the sense that, on the one hand, we, are, um, we want to, to pull off this deal of land for peace. And when it fails, we tell ourselves, if only we had given more. 
Whereas on the other side, the view is, this is the line for war, the more we get, the better positioned we are to pursue our war. And so um, I became more and more upset. And then when the Intifada broke out, uh, that's Talk when... about the second Intifada? Second Intifada, which I call the Oslo Jihad. Okay. Um, and take, take a non-judgmental term, right? The Oslo Jihad. Okay, fine. Right, right. <laughs> I consider it descriptive. Um, so, okay. yeah, so when the Oslo Jihad breaks out, um, that's the point, that was a sort of critical moment in which a whole series of attitudes crystallized that had been in the making before, but could have broken a different way, broke the wrong way. By, from the point of view of what I consider liberal, progressive, Western, humanitarian values. People who want land for peace. People who want peace. Right. Um, so that's when I think I started, you know, I still didn't have this in mind. In 2005, I started a blog. And then in 2008, uh, Charles Jacobs said to me, you got to write a book about this. Uh, it took me another 15 years. Um, it, was, it was a mess. Okay. Which brings us indirectly, but nonetheless, to the present book, which has just come out. Mazel Tov, by the way, on the book appearing. Can the whole world be wrong? Now, that's a quote, of course, from Achad Ha'am, really, right? I mean, Achad yeah. Ha'am is a Zionist thinker in the late 1800s, yeah, early 1890s. And he's basically parroting the views of the world, right? He's saying they say about us. Yeah, he's probably parroting the views of the Ukrainians. <laughs> well, who are back in the news, but in a different way, uh, right? right. Uh, can the whole world be wrong? Like, if the whole right. world hates us, then right. he's... If the whole world believes that we sacrifice Christian babies to take their blood to make matzah, and we say no, can the whole world be wrong and the Jews be right? right. Okay, so now how is that question relevant? This is, can the whole world be wrong? Right. It's not about babies and blood and matzah right. anymore right. today. right. You are, give us, give us, you know, kind of the soapbox version of what's the thesis of the Right, book. so that quote comes back in 2002 when the press is reporting across the boards a massacre in Jenin and there are articles about Israeli genocide from high-minded British uh, 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 thinkers in high-minded British papers and so on uh, accusing us of genocide and uh, in Jenin. And um, the head of the UN, Kofi Annan, says, I don't think the whole world can be wrong and Israel be right. He didn't even ask a question. It wasn't even a rhetorical question for him. It was open and shut. We're doing what the Palestinians say we're doing. But of course we know now it's not even a matter of interpretation. We weren't. We weren't. We were doing the opposite. There's no no three-week urban battle that's taken place in modern warfare in which three to one the militants are the 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 casualties and the civilians to the civilians it's normally the opposite so yes so and 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 this is all this then plays into and i think one of the themes i'm trying to get across in my book is that what's happening in israel israel is if you will Patient zero or victim zero Meaning or what? target zero. In other words, what happened here in 2000, jihadis, and I think that 
if you listen to what they say, if you follow memory and Palestinian media watch, these are global jihadis. They're just happen to be on this battlefield, but they're part of a global jihad, Hamas, definitely. Um, jihadis are attacking a democracy, and everybody agrees it's the democracy's fault. It's Israel's fault. And when the attack on the United States happens in 9-11, you've just been through this hate fest at Durban, right. which prepared world opinion to turn against the United States. So 10 days after 9-11, you've got a major French thinker, Baudrillard, writing in the, in the Le Monde, saying, nobody who loves freedom can't rejoice at what happened at 9-11, striking so suffocating a hegemon as the United States. Okay, so now we're in 2001 is the attack on the United... 2000 right. is the beginning right. of the attack on Israel. Right. In the, in 2001. The so what happens is uh, Reuters and BBC refuse to use the word terrorism to describe it. Okay, now I want to go to 2002, I think it is, with right. uh, Jose Saramago. Yes, Okay. It's a bit of a long quote. It's a full paragraph, but I do want to read it. Okay. And we have it up for our listeners on the uh, in the post Mm-hmm. In, which this web, in which this podcast is disseminated. Uh, it's on page 13 of the introduction of your book. Um, I just think it's really important to read it because you're commenting on it. I think we'll actually cut through to a tremendous amount of what this book is about. Good. I mean, it's not in your yes. introduction by accident, right? right? <laughs> uh, so here's what he says. By the way, I think he was getting the Nobel Prize then, wasn't he? Yes, he, was, he had gotten it. He had gotten the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So he's a Nobel Prize winning, winning author. Who goes to visit Arafat in... Ramallah. And then writes, Intoxicated mentally by the messianic dream of greater Israel, which will finally achieve the expansionist dreams of the most radical Zionism, contaminated by the monstrous and rooted certitude that in this catastrophic and absurd world there exists a people chosen by God, and that consequently all the actions of an obsessive, psychological, and pathologically exclusive racism are justified. Educated and trained in the idea that any suffering that has been afflicted or will be inflicted on anyone else, especially the Palestinians, will always be inferior to that which they themselves suffered in the Holocaust. This is just an amazing line. The Jews endlessly scratch their own wound to keep it bleeding, to make it incurable, and they show it to the world as if it were a banner. Israel seizes hold of the terrible words of God in Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine, and I will be repaid. Israel wants all of us to feel guilty, directly or indirectly, for the horrors of the Holocaust. Israel wants us to renounce the most elemental critical judgment and for us to transform ourselves into a docile echo of its will. Israel wants us to recognize de jure what, in its eyes, is de facto reality, absolute impunity. From the point of view of the Jews, all Jews, he seems to suggest, not Mm -hmm. some Jews, Israel cannot ever be brought to judgment because it was tortured, gassed, and incinerated in Auschwitz. Okay, that's not for the faint of heart either. What's the argument of your whole book in response to Saramaga? Because in a certain way, I mean, this is a very intricate, highly learned, very dense at times response. Super session. Right, so what's... 
How is your book a response to him? What are you saying that we should know about right. Richard Landy's response to Saramago? Right. So uh, I actually, the next paragraph, and I encourage you to put it up as well, is me restating what he said. But about if it was the, about this, if it were about the Muslims and the Palestinians, which you could never say. Well, what I said is, you know, and and although this is far more accurate about the the Palestinians and the jihadis than uh, what he said about the Jews, what he says can be shouted from the rooftops of major publications, and what the the counterfactual case is utterly silenced, and and that I think is. The core of how the world can be wrong. In other words, you've got this, especially the sort of scratching the, the wound, which is what the Palestinians do with the Nakba, and and making people into docile um, expressions of their will, which is what the Palestinians were doing after 2000. And yet he's falling fully for it and, and turning the fury of his supersessionist, I mean, this whole thing about the Jews and the chosen people. Uh, one of the things I have an article coming out in a journal of anti-Semitism uh, soon about uh, progressive supersessionism. There's this projection that supersessionists have, in which they project onto Jews the well, the nastiest supersessionists. They project onto Jews their notion of chosenness, which is we get to rule the world and nobody we're unaccountable onto the Jews and then hate us for their projection. And that's exactly what Saramago is doing there. And that, I think, since 2000 and since the response to the Oslo Jihad, in which I'm afraid Israelis, I think mostly of goodwill, have participated, uh, as I put it, they're holding up the train of this icon of hatred. It's not the emperor's new clothes, it's the emperor's new hatred. And we're holding up the train in this uh, procession in which uh, if only we had been better, it would have worked out. You right? think Israelis still think that? I mean, now we're having this conversation in 2023, right. obviously. Right. I, there might have been Israelis. There was a left, for example, mm -hmm. in, in the days in mm -hmm. the 1994s, 5s, 6s, and 7s, and the whole right. Oslo thing. There was an Israeli left. There's really right. no Israeli left anymore. Um, there were people then, I think, who were saying, if only he had done, but we had done more, right. if we had done better. Right. Do you think that voice still exists in a meaningful way vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians in Israel anymore? Well, yes and no. I mean, let's take, for example, um, let's take Ehud Barak. But I think Ehud Barak, in fairness, I think Ehud Barak, I want to actually say that we're going to leave Ehud Barak out. I'll, okay. tell, you, I'll tell you why. Because I don't think Ehud Barak, who was in 2000, obviously, right. prime minister right. and negotiating and so on and so forth, right. during the Intifada, which you're calling the Oslo Jihad. The Oslo Jihad. Um, I just think that Ehud Barak has become less of a representative of the mainstream left in right. Israel, particularly in the last half a year in, in light of the positions that he's taken about the Netanyahu government. I mean, I see a lot of people who are further left than, well, a lot of people that I know right. who are actually not citing Barack anymore because they think he's kind of gone off and done his own thing. So right. I want to leave, I want to not talk about, I want to talk about the okay. rank and file or let's go this way. There's been over the last year in Israel, right, millions of people all together, right. some total, right, right, protesting in the streets. Right. In Tel Aviv on Kaplan, right. every Saturday night, right, there are right. hundreds of thousands of people Jerusalem. out there. And many of them are what one would call the Tel Aviv secular liberal Israeli. Right. Tell me if I'm wrong. 
I think that most of those people no longer are doing an alachet. They are no longer beating their breast about Israel's right. handling of the Palestinian right. issue and saying, oh, if only we had done more, things would have worked out better. Uh, my sense, and, and you know, you, you might just disagree with me, which is totally fine, right. but my sense is Israelis aren't there anymore. No, I, I would agree with you, but, but the damage was done on a massive scale. There was, after 2000, a whole bunch of sort of, uh, what did they call themselves? Uh, Post-Zionists went to the West, poured their vitriol into the academic welcome. Well, those were really sort of the, the new historians. Right, the, the new right. historians and so on. But also, I mean, Peter Beinert. Um, well, I want to come to Peter Beinert in a second, because right. I want to actually ask okay. you about American Jews separately. Right. All right, so you're saying, though, in so the I'm 90s... So I'm saying that, that what happened then, and what I would say is, there, the, the shift has been a largely silent shift. In other words, there's no grappling with what went wrong. There's no gra- there, it, there is. I mean, people grapple with what went wrong, but I don't think they get at the core of what went wrong. What went wrong? What went wrong, I think, was that, uh, look, uh, as I said, at the beginning I was for Oslo. After a while I turned against it uh, or was critical of it and worried about it. You can argue we had to try it. It's a legitimate position to take, and we had to take the risk. But two things happened during Oslo and got worse after Oslo that had a huge impact on the West. One was the willingness of Israeli journalists to engage in fake news. I mean, you know, that's what we call it now, but then it was called peace journalism in which Arafat's speech in, in Johannesburg about this is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah barely got covered. When Dennis Ross writes his memoirs or when Charles Allen writes his memoirs and what happened, there's no Hudaybiyah in the index. They don't discuss it. What is that? The Hudaybiyah speech was basically, look, Muhammad made a treaty with the Meccans when he was weak, but as soon as he was strong, he turned on it. And that's what we're doing. We're weak right now, so we're using this. It's a Trojan horse. And that theme got buried. When the PLO was brought together in, I think, late 95 or early 96 to change their charter according, they didn't. The news reported it as if they did. So on the one hand, you have this corruption of the news. There's an interview with... uh, um, Yigal Carmoni said he went to um, Nachum Barnea and showed him the stuff. And Nachum Barnea said, look, you're doing this because you're against peace. Uh, I'm for peace, so I'm not going to cover this. So on the one hand, you have the news media betraying the public because they're promoting a cause which they think is worthy. And the second thing is they demonized the opposition. So anybody who spoke out against it was a warmonger. Anybody who spoke out against it was a right-wing fanatic and got lumped with, you know, the worst of the settlers and stuff. And when the warriors came out, the suicide bombers came out of the Trojan horse of Oslo, instead of saying, mea culpa, we really got this wrong, the attitude was, if only we had given more. And I think there's lots of people who are still saying, if only we had given more. Okay, I mean, maybe there are, I don't, uh, we might disagree about that a little bit, which is right. totally fine. I think if somebody went to uh, Barnea right now and, and said the same thing, he would not respond that way. I think if there were a, I mean, look, let's look, actually, Araf, I mean, Mahmoud Abbas, 
right. Arafat, but that was actually a Freudian slip. Yeah, but okay, Mahmoud Abbas just gave a revolting right. speech within the last, uh, he's, he did it back in September, right? right? And, you know, the, the, the Holocaust was animated by the Jews and their right. money issues right. and so on. It had on nothing so, to do with anti-Semitism. And nothing to do with anti-Semitism. <laughs> I mean, really the worst of the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually just going to feed into your thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly after that, Martin Indyk, a very well-known mm-hmm. American diplomat mm-hmm. and so forth. Major player. Major player. He tweets on September 12th, which is a few days, I think, after right. um, uh, after Abu Mazen and Mahmoud Abbas called him what you wanted, right. um, said, said what he said. Martin Indyk tweets, I have been despairing about how to respond to Abu Mazen's profoundly anti-Semitic diatribe. How could someone who has treated me as a personal friend for three decades at the same time harbor such hateful views of my people? Right. So I want to ask Richard Landis, right. what's the answer to that question? How could someone who treated Martin Indyk right. as a friend for 30 years right. harbor such horrible views right. of Martin Indyk's people? What's right. the answer? The answer is that this is somebody who's operating according to the rules of an honor-shame culture, in which, in order to save face and in order to advance your cause, it's perfectly legitimate to pretend to stuff. And Martin Indyk got taken in. I mean, Giddy Greenstein, in his interview with you, and apparently in his book, emphasizes the deep trust that built up. Well, yes, but, you know, that trust for us is existential. For them, if conditions change, it doesn't have the same meaning. And we can't, I mean, one of the things that's really striking about how the media covers this conflict, and I have a quote from Andrea Koppel about this, you know, it was at the height of uh, the Janine stuff. Journalists hadn't been allowed in yet. Andrea Koppel is, hasn't even been to near Janine. She just landed. She's in Tel Aviv, and she's talking about the Israeli massacre. And somebody says to her, how do you know? And she said, well, I heard it. Uh, um, from journalists. And he said, journalists haven't been allowed in. How do they know? They heard it from Palestinians. He said, is it possible the Palestinians are lying? And her response was, oh, so they're all lying now. So there's a sort of, we are as good Western people of goodwill, helpless before people who will willingly lie to us. Okay, so I want you to push that point. What you're saying basically is that our, and I'm, this includes the left and the right, and religious and secular, and Democrat and Republican, and Merits and Likud, okay. it, right? It's everybody. You're saying the way that we're raised, the kind of discourse that we're trained to engage in, right. the way we're trained to see the world, even if we have disagreements among right. all of us, it fundamentally emasculates us all in the face of a culture which we just don't know how to deal with. Exactly. And by the way, the only people who said that Right. were the radical right in Israel in the days of Oslo, especially right. the settler movement, right. who said you're being taken in. Yes. And they were actually right. And they so were, when you were in favor of Oslo and I was in favor of Oslo, both of us we at the were beginning, being taken in. they were right about us. Yes. And they were right about them. I use the term hopium. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, I want to I wanna, uh, fast forward a little bit okay. uh, into the late 300s in terms of the pages of the book. Okay. Not 300 CE. I saw you get lost. <laughs> exactly. No, no. You're like, that's a long time. Getting happy. Um, 
You talk. Well, I want to move the conversation a little bit to American Jews. Okay. Uh, you and I again might disagree. I think Israeli Jews have been weaned a little right. bit from this. Right. I don't think there's a lot of breastfeeding. Oh, if only we have done more. Right. I think. Right. Right. Look. No, I agree. The, the, fact, I mean, the fascinating thing about the, the whole thing that public. went on with the whole judicial reform thing, and you know. Right. The Palestinian issue really didn't come up at all. Right. There were some signs right. at the protests, in right. democratia in kibush, right. there's no democracy right. with an occupation. Right. Those signs were few and far between. Right. There were many more gay pride signs and, and uh-huh. flags than there were anti-occupation flags. I think Israelis, even on the left, understood right. that whatever was going on in Israel, right. whether you were pro-reform or right. anti-reform, it wasn't about the Palestinians. Right. So I think that Ameri- the Israeli Jews have sort of kind of weaned themselves from that. Right. You may think I'm a little naive and a little bit more... No, I think they've weaned themselves from it, but it, they haven't grappled with the consequences of the previous error. So, for instance, I think that a lot of the opposition, a lot of the people whom I respect, like um, Gerald Steinberg, um, and and uh, um, Itamar Marcus and stuff. Who, who of memory, right? Well, no, of uh, Palestinian media. A problem is very much right. Thank you. Who who are clear on what went wrong back there, are highly suspicious of what's going on with these protests. In part, and I think it's even worse for people who are even farther. Um, I, I don't like to use right left, but who are even more hard line than they, that there's a deep suspicion that underlying this protest is a kind of um, desire to realign with democratic forces around the world. So, for instance, Gideon, his interview, was talking about how the American uh, policy elite are beginning to wonder if Netanyahu is rational anymore and if he, you know, if he's not rational, you know, he's unpredictable and so on. In my read, when it comes to the Middle East, the American policy elite have been irrational for the last 20 years. Well, but you're talking about America, I'm talking about Israeli right. people on the streets. Right. So let's right. go to America. But, but there, there's a, a deep desire. You're saying, I here, think. I'll put it this way. Even if we've weaned ourselves, yeah. we are, uh, we're recovering addicts. <laughs> I'm going to mix metaphors here. Like, okay. the, you're, you're still sort right. of yearning right. for the for the drug. But I want to go to America. We're not scratching drug. it anymore, but we haven't. I got you. Okay. okay. But not scratching in the same sense of the Saramago. Right. Quote. That's a right. different thing. Right. Got to be careful how many times you use that, <laughs> use that phrase. Okay. Gotcha. Now, um, I want to shift across the ocean, um, not not Arabs, not Israelis, but American Jews. Yeah. And you lump together uh, a whole bunch of people. Right. And I'll read a couple of sentences. It's in the middle of an argument, so it's okay. actually, people are going to have to right. read the, the chapter to see it. But um, the, the, uh, the chapter is about what you call anti-Zionist Jews, the pathologies of self-criticism. Right. Well, you read the, um, at the beginning of the chapter of a haiku. Which oh, you have really a haiku like. at the beginning of the chapter. Okay. I'm going to flip here to the beginning of the chapter. Uh, here's... The yes, th- that one has. Okay. Uh, here's a little haiku. Have ever before lambs denounced lambs who refuse to lie with lions? Okay, so basically the lambs are denouncing other lambs yes. who refuse to the lie American with lions. The American Jews, the diaspora Jews, are denouncing us for refusing to participate in their messianic scenario whereby we lie down with the Palestinians and, as the joke goes, we wake up the next morning. Right. Of course, if anybody gets eaten by the lion, it's us, not them. Exactly. But, but, you know, they... Okay, now, 
So now we're going to skip a few pages okay. in, a bunch of like 20 pages in or whatever, and you ask the following. Do 21st century anti-Zionist Jews like Judith Butler, Peter Beinart, Daniel Boyarin, Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, do this consciously? Do they know that they mimic the most sadistic memes put out by their people's most ferocious enemies and fuel those hatreds? Do they realize they have teamed up with a tribal notion of justice based on revenge for lost honor, on washing one's blackened face in the blood of the dishonoring enemy, in which that targeted enemy is their own people, with whom they publicly identify as a Jew? Uh, wow, first of all, <laughs> wow. Uh, that's some serious writing there. Um, so, um, look, Jewish Voice for Peace has always been rabidly right. anti-Israel. Right. I mean, it's been hostile to Israel's right. very existence from the, from from the, the very, very right. get-go. And, and there's a good question as to how many Jews are actually in it. Right, it's not for peace and it's right. not Jewish. <laughs> it's, it's, not it's a voice. It's not always said that, that JVP is neither J or P. Right. It's just a bit of a V. Right. But that's not true of Peter Beinart. Okay. Right? There were days in which I was de debating Peter Beinart, right. and you know, right. there's lots of YouTubes of right. me and Peter right. Beinart debating all over the place. We disagreed about politics, but that he loved Israel and cared about Israel right. was obvious to me, right. which was why I was willing to debate him. Right. Because we started out, we started right. out from the from the assumption right. that yeah, the Jews should have an independent Jewish right. democratic state. Right. Now Peter Beinart has come out since and stated publicly that he is no longer in favor of the existence of a Jewish state, right. uh, which is why I no longer debate him. I mean, because at that point you're the enemy right. of my people, and right. you can call yourself a Jew and all you want. Right. You can go to an Orthodox shul in the Upper West Side, which he does, mm -hmm. all well and good, but I'm not getting on a stage with you. Right. Um, what happened? I don't mean him ad hominem. I don't want to talk right. about Peter ad hominem, but what is the dynamic here of, you know, Peter of some liberal rabbis whom we will purposely not name right. by name here, who um, it's become almost a, a uh, I don't know, it's, 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 they're consumed by this desire right. to uh, lambast Israel beyond the relevant, to me at least, beyond what policy would dictate. Right. And they've built a whole world out right. of this. How's your, what's your understanding and how it fits into the theory right. of the book at large gotcha. as to what this is really all about? Right. So on, the, on one level, it's important to understand that they are operating in a society in which the whole world can't be wrong. So they're just buying words, into the larger Western they, they're, they're buying into it on the one hand. Now, so they're for, saying Saramago can't be wrong. Right, right. So, or, so yes. So Saramago is painfully right, right? I hate to think it, I hate to, but I have to admit it. Now that gets at what I call uh, masochistic omnipotence syndrome, which is... Masochistic. You have a lot of syndromes i got to learn about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Masochistic omnipotence, omnipotence syndrome, syndrome, which is, okay. it's all our fault, and if only we were better, we could, we could fix anything. Right, but we talked about that a minute or two ago. Yes. So you're, I'm saying, you don't completely agree, but that's okay. Uh -huh. I'm saying, I think a lot of Israelis have weaned themselves right. of that. Right. And you think that American Jews, and their leaders especially, Jews, but a lot but of yes, American Jewish leaders on are, the left... Are folding on this. Are still, are still are, there. Are still there. And uh, first of all, that's the sort of progressive attitude today, right? Mm -hmm. Jews stole the land. Jews are mean. Jews are imperialists. And it's such a powerful wave that, you know, you can, it's not, not a question of sticking your finger in the dike anymore. I mean, when 9-11 when happened, Peter Beiner was at the New Republic, which wasn't yet a sort of uh, what it's become. 
Which um, is not much of anything, Which frankly. is not a guess. I mean, I stopped even reading their headlines. Um, a, Peter Bynett was the New Republic and wanted a muscular liberal response, right? I haven't done his entire career, but he has gradually, and I think that's the case across the boards. I mean, when 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 BBC and Reuters refused to word, use the word terror, that was an outcry amongst American journalists. What are you doing? But within three or four years, the Boston Globe was writing op-eds or, or whatever about uh, the use of the word terror and so on. And after a while, the most anti-Western attitudes dominated. It took a while. It didn't happen right away. But over time, they did. And I think Peter Bynett's a really good illustration of how that the force of that drive worked on Jews, you know, and I don't want to impugn Peter Beiner by saying he wants to be popular, um, but he sure is popular, you know, he's appearing on all these programs with all the wrong people. It's the court Jew phenomenon? In a sense, yeah, but, but it's the court Jew phenomenon, you know, there are lots of court Jews who do it while it looks like it's helping. At this point, it's, you know, the, one of the things about this, a lot of people on the left, a lot of Jews on the left, think they're being prophetic by denouncing Israel. They see themselves as, right? The prophets never went to Bavel or to, you know, Assyria and in the language of the enemies of their people denounced their people. They did it in Hebrew to their own people. But these guys are going to the courts of the Gentiles, speaking in their language, really revolting stuff. I mean, it's one Animated thing to, by having bought into it? Yes, I think they bought into it. I don't think that Peter Beiner is an evil person. I think he's a deluded person. You know, Now, does he have a right to be deluded? I would say he's got a lot to do on Rosh Hashanah, but we all do. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, all right, let's, I want to come back to, to one thing in a minute about Israel and how Israel should, should address all this. I just have to sort of sneak in here. You know, one of the things that I noticed between, let's say, January 2023, right. which was more or less when the whole judicial reform thing in Israel right. started to get right. going, and, you know, let's say Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur of 2023, nine, right. ten months later, right. Right? one of the things I noticed was and this is just a separate conversation. I'm just sort of musing out loud right. because we're having a chat. Right. I was surprised by the way in which the rabbis on the American left right. did not embrace the Israelis on the streets. Huh. In other words, you didn't see fire right. and brimstone sermons saying, for many years it's been very hard for us to identify with Israel right. because yeah. we had a problem with right. the Palestinian we think. We had a problem with the Israeli chief rabbinate. We had a problem with the Kotel, with the Western Wall policy. Right. But congregation, look right. look what's happening on the streets of right. Tel Aviv at Kaplan Square. That's us. Right. That's exactly what we believe the world should be. Right. Let's embrace them. This right. is our moment to take great pride in Zionism. Right. You heard very little of that. And I think that there is a whole exploration of what you might call the silence of the progressive lambs, you know, or something like that, since you have all these catchy theories. No, but I think it's really a fascinating question. I don't want to get, I don't want to mention specific rabbis here, but why some of these rabbis who are best known for lambasting Israel left and right all the time about the conflict when there was this massive phenomenon in Israel, you can agree with it 
agree to disagree with right, that. Leave right. that alone right now. Right. But there was this massive right. phenomenon of the right. street right. speaking about democracy right. and protecting the rights of minorities right. and so on and so forth. The American rabbinic left sort of said, yeah, that's, that's good. We're in favor of that. Right. But there wasn't this embrace. And I think that some of that is, a, I think, right. and again, it's not in your book, right. obviously, that some of this is the same thing. They have so internalized the Saramago worldview yeah. that even when there's something happening in yeah. Israel yeah. that they love and right. ought to want to embrace, right. they don't even know how to do it anymore. Right. Which so, to me was actually kind of heartbreaking. Right. Uh, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but as you say this, one of the, I don't use the analogy in the book, but I think that I, I do talk about self-criticism, which is a key element of Judaism and which I, you know, my favorite thing is to say to people, I think the Jews are the most self-critical people in the world, and the response is, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that self-criticism, at one point, and actually Nick Cohen cited me in this, I said, self-criticism in public is like chewing broken glass. You know, nobody wants to do it. Jews do. Right. We are... It, for us, it's a matter of pride. I have a quote from Sigmund Freud where it says, you know, the, it's the magnificent victory of the ego over the superego to be self-critical and so on. Okay, so it's like dopamine for runners. You become addicted to it and you can't let go of it. And I think that they're addicted to this position and again, I think that comes back to the sort of whole world being against Israel. If they were to turn and say, hey, there's something we can be proud of, then they have to deal with all the people that they've been pleasing with their criticism. Who now are not going to be pleased. Or, or they'd have to be teach them a different kind of a language, right. which they don't want to do. Okay, we, we could talk a lot longer, but we've already been going on for a bit. I just want to ask you really quickly by way of beginning to wrap up. I mean, the book is, the book is a tour de force. It's it's depressing. Um, it just is. It's just because it describes the Western world in ways that are really very hard to argue with, but nonetheless really overwhelmingly sad. Uh, you know, you told me before we got started that friends of yours have told you that the book is really an ad for antidepressants right. or, you know, to, you know, buy the book and then buy right. some antidepressants. Right. I actually thought the same thing as I was reading it. Um, like, you know, it's good to keep a bottle of scotch on the table right. as you're reading this book, but it's the same idea. It's, it's, um, it's it's a hard book to read, not because the writing is not great. The writing is great. It's just it's heavy. It's it's and even if somebody only read a third, they would understand right. our world much much better. In light of what your insight is in the book, is there anything in the world that Israel could possibly do uh, well. to lessen the international opprobrium, other than fold? Wow. wow. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, at one point in the chapter on Jewish anti-Zionism, I talk about how dangerous it is for Gentiles to listen to this. They love this. They, they eat it up, you know. As uh, Gerald Steinberg says, they're, they're Jew washers. Oh, I'm not saying anything Jews aren't saying. Um, so I think that... that uh, but it's really bad for them. I mean, you know, the joke in the 20th century, I think Isaiah Berlin said, um, anti-Semitism is hating Jews more than absolutely necessary. Yeah. Well, in the 21st century, it's hating Jews even though it's killing you. Uh, I think it's killing the West. I think that the jihadi invasion of the West, the cognitive war, has been immensely successful by attacking the soft underbelly of, underbelly of their unacknowledged anti-Semitism. 
How does this get us back to what Jews can do? Or well, but Israel, what Israel can is there do? anything that Israel could do in the way it comports right. itself? Uh, I do. Uh, look, you know, every once in a while, like a slumbering giant, uh, Israel wakes up to the damage done by the cognitive war. You know, when Al-Dura happened, the attitude of the Israeli government is, we're not going to touch this. It's the third rail. Stay away from it. You know, and people who were accused in the courts in Paris turned to the Israeli government for support and got nothing. And the press was also very hostile to it. So I had a conversation with Nachum Barnea and, and Beit Michaeli in 2004 or so. And Beit Michaeli says to me, uh, hundred percent the Jews, the Israelis killed um, right. um, uh, Al-Dura, right. which of course they didn't. Right. So um, this, by the way, just to remind our listeners, this was the very famous case of a father and a son hiding, I think it was like a cement barrier or right. something like that. And barrel. it looked like he got barrel, whatever, but they got, looked like he got killed by Israeli forces. Right. It when was it became, reported that he was targeted in his father's arms. Okay. So... Um, so what can Israelis do? Well, for one thing, we're, you know, I think these, these demonstrations show us a society which has in many ways fallen victim to the cognitive war that's been waged against it. And I think it's interesting because Israeli democracy is in crisis and American democracy is in crisis. And we are the two targets of the cognitive war of the caliphators on the one hand and the progressives on the other. Um, so I really think that a real reckoning in which the, the, the tendency to demonize your enemy within is confronted, in which the tendency of journalists to report what they think would be good for the cause that they support is confronted. Intelligence officials, I mean, you know, listening to uh, um, Yigal Carmon, it's kind of scary the kinds of things that intelligence officials have and continue to do in terms of and I think that in some senses, Israel could be the leader. I mean, I think Israel is the natural leader of the fourth world, which is the world that's oppressed by the third world, who control the UN and therefore hate us. Um, I think Israel could be a key factor in coming to grips with this medieval mentality that must be confronted. You, you know, the, the phrase during Oslo was, uh, you don't make peace with friends, you make peace with enemies. No, you make peace with enemies who are ready to become friends. But if you make peace with enemies who are determined to destroy you, that's suicidal. And I think that, that coming to grips with this massive problem that has to be addressed, the, the, the problem of an unashamed culture, it's not that all Arabs are stuck there, but the, the, the dominant voices in these communities are. And until we come to grips with that, we can't make peace with them. Which is interesting in the following sense. Um, I mean, I think all of our listeners know that I am hardly associated with the Israeli, you know, far right or even right. hard, you know, center right. It's just right. not me. But they have been saying all along, stop worrying about what the world thinks of you yes. because nothing you do is going to appease the world. Yes. Let's just do what's good for us and we'll take the flap because... Um... Yes, yeah, my attitude would be different, which is 
stop thinking, stop worrying about what the wrong people in the West think of you and start paying attention to people who understand the problem as you do or should and build a different coalition. Wow. So don't ignore the world, but don't give in. You know, I, the Aldura image, I, I say it's like the, the emperor's new clothes, but instead of being a vain emperor, it's an icon of hatred that's parading down the street. Drop the train. Stop carrying it. Stop pretending that if you're nice and go along, they will love you. There, there's a great line by Rabbi Sachs about how um, uh, the, the Jews who are highly critical of Jews are people who love people who don't love them. We've been loving people who don't love us. And even the people who love us have been sucked into the discourse that we've given into. And I think we have to step back and say, and we don't have to say it ferociously. I think the sort of right wing is F them. We don't have to say it that way, but I do think we have to firmly say, look, I think you got this wrong. And, and we got it wrong. And we contributed to your getting it wrong. And it's time to stop because it's not just Israel that's at stake. It's the West. It's the it's democracy. It's a it's a it's humane human, society. It's human freedom. Yeah. What's at stake here is human freedom. Absolutely. It's a call to it's a call to arms. It's a call to um, clear minded understanding. It's a very very compelling, even if uh, depressing depressing <laughs> read. But you know, I mean, life is serious business, and if you're going to live life meaningfully, you have to confront things that you don't necessarily want to confront. Whether it's raising children or friends or business. No, it's just the nature, <laughs> no, no, of, the, the nature of the beast. Right. Richard Landy's Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad. Thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you. This was great. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas. Yeah.